But she continues the definition. Love is love. Whether it's between a man and a woman, or two women, or two men, or a woman and a non-binary person, or a man and a non-binary person, or two non-binary people, or just any two humans. Love is beyond these trivial differences of gender or sex or sexualities or romantic or sexual orientations. Love is love. Now, my intention this morning is not to unpack this particular definition of love, although that could be a helpful exercise. My intention in bringing this up is to begin our time by showing you two things. One, the world has painstakingly crafted its own definitions of love. But two, God, our God himself, defines love. And his definition takes precedent. In fact, it nullifies any other definitions we may have. So this morning, we're continuing in our mini-series through 1 John with 1 John 4, a very popular, sometimes infamous passage of Scripture. If you're using a Blue Pew Bible, you can find that on page 1023. And as always, the purpose of John's first letter is for those who believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to know that they have eternal life. That's 1 John 5, verse 13. So we've made it past the halfway point here, and by now, we should be able to pick up some of the main themes of the book, like abiding in God, loving your brother, obeying God's commandments. But more than this, we should be able to map out major themes of the book. And the overall major theme I've been proposing to you is the Christian's assurance of salvation. The apostle has had the goal of assurance in mind, and he's been building a case for assurance from the very beginning. Last week we saw, because our status has been changed from children of the devil to children of God, we can live righteously, and one way we ought to live righteously is by sacrificially loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. In the end of chapter 3, he began an important transition from outward assurance of salvation to inward assurance of salvation, and he's using love as a means to get there. The apostle began to define love. We remember chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And if we love this way, we can have assurance we are children of God, but he doesn't want our eyes to stay simply on the work that we do, he, what we are doing, so that at the end of chapter 3, he introduces the reality of the Spirit of God living inside of us. And this, again adds to the crescendo of assurances that he's been seeking to give his church that we can have in 1 John. So let's read our text this morning. I'm going to start in 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, the last verse, and then we'll read all of chapter 4. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 
And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we always seek to do here at Redeemer Baptist Church, the main point of the text ought to be the main point of the sermon. So naturally, I have three points for the sermon. The first is this. Christians can be assured we know God because we possess his spirit. Christians can be assured we know God because we possess his spirit. That's verses 1 through 6. If you've been following the theme of abiding throughout our text, you will have noticed earlier there have been several references to Christians needing to abide in something. John calls us to abide in the message. He calls us to abide in the light, to abide in the anointing we receive from Christ, to abide in Christ to abide in God's love. And then at the end of chapter 3, you'll notice he says we abide in God himself. This abiding doesn't just go one way. It goes both ways. 
The message abides in us. The anointing from Christ abides in us. Christ himself abides in us. God's love abides in us. And again, and the end of chapter 3, we now learn that God himself abides in us. Chapter 3, verse 24. We know this because he has given us the Holy Spirit. Now, thankfully, and I think he does this intentionally, John does not leave us, he does not leave the identity of the Spirit up for speculation. Neither did Jesus leave the identity of the Holy Spirit up for speculation. In John 14, 25 through 26, hear this. When Jesus first told his disciples he was sending the Spirit, he said this, These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. And the apostle, the apostles did not even receive the Holy Spirit until Pentecost. So from the time Jesus says this to the time of Pentecost, there, there could have been room for speculation. But just like his Lord assured him, John assures us, this is how you'll know the Spirit. We can determine a variety of ways in which the Spirit works from other texts in the New Testament. But what is it here that John deems most important to make us aware, especially with regard to our assurance of salvation. If we truly possess the Spirit, what is important for us to know about the Holy Spirit? Well, two things, I think, from this text. First, the Holy Spirit helps us distinguish between spirits. The Holy Spirit helps us distinguish between spirits. Let's look at verse 1. Beloved, Do not believe every spirit. So you're saying there's more than one, John? Yeah, there's more than one. And the apostle is commanding us to be wise. Do not be gullible and simply believe every one of them. So what should we do, John? He continues. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, without getting too much uh, into the detail, the word for the capital S spirit is the same word that's used for lowercase s spirit. It's the same thing. So how do we define this? Well, one commentator gives us a helpful definition. This is what he says. John is concerned to instruct his readers to be aware of and discern between two opposing spiritual forces at work that can be manifested in human behavior apart from demonic possession. We'll touch on that. In the context of the Johannine churches, these two forces were being manifested by true and false confessions of faith in Christ. That's what we've seen through the text up to this point. What he's getting at, he's not referring to human spirits, though the person is the agent of the message. You get the person's the one who says it. He's not referring to human spirits, and he's also not referring to demons. These people aren't possessed, and they're running around possessed like the legion we see in in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Luke. But it does refer to a spiritual force behind a confession of faith. And that makes sense as John continues in verse 1. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. What do false prophets have to do with spirits? It's about testing the message they proclaim. The spirit of the false prophets is that of the Antichrist. Verse 3. And verse 6 shows us this is a spirit of error. They are spreading a message that is in error. 
So John tells us we must test these messages that we're hearing to determine whether they are from the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the Antichrist. But how can we test? We test them with their confession of Christ. Verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Remember last week we saw John's summary phrases? Well, here again, John is giving us a summary phrase. It's really obvious when he goes from confessing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to just confess Jesus. He condenses it here. But because it's a summary phrase, we should have imported all of our prior understanding of the Antichrist and their message that he spent all time in chapter 2 describing for us. They deny the Father and the Son. They deny their sinfulness. In fact, they glory in their sinfulness because they make a regular practice of their sinfulness. They deny accordingly that Jesus died for sins because sins aren't that big a deal, right? This is not the Spirit of God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist and church. We need to be just as cautious as these people had to be when it comes to falling prey to a plethora of false messages about who Jesus is that we're tempted to every single day. Every day we're tempted to believe something different about Jesus. What messages have you been hearing about Jesus this week? What messages have you been hearing about who God is and what he expects of you? What messages have you been hearing from people who claim to know God, to know Jesus, but they say something different? Who are these messages coming from? Don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits. Hold fast to the true confession of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have in the testimony of the Scriptures, the Son of God made flesh to redeem us from our sin, as the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit testify. But how? We do so by the Spirit's power within us. That's the second thing we need to know about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit protects and empowers us to overcome the world and its false messages. The Holy Spirit protects and empowers us to overcome the world and its false messages. Just let, let the weight of this verse sit on your mind for just a moment. Hear this. Little children, you are from God and have overcome the antichrists. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Before we fret and panic, because on the one hand, John just said, there's a lot of spirits out there. you got to be on guard against them. And on the other hand, we got to test them all because they all can be deceptive and lead us away from the living Christ. Before we fret and panic, the apostle reminds us, God is in us. The Spirit dwells in us, and by His power working in us, we've already overcome the Spirit of the Antichrist. So when people bring messages that would lead us away from Jesus, the Holy Spirit protects us and empowers us to walk in the truth, to remember the message. We no longer believe the false messages the world proclaims because we've come to know Him who is true, and He who is true, who testifies to the truth, lives inside of us. 
We can combat the false messages that we hear constantly. Our assurance that we can live in this world and test the spirits as they come is the Holy Spirit inside of us. The living testimony to the truth has taken up permanent residence inside of us as believers. Now that's rent-free, I might add, in this Virginia economy. That's a steal. He's done so permanently. So here's a simple question. Do you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you? Christians wholeheartedly without hesitation can say yes. Another simple question. Do you live like it? Do you live like you possess the Holy Spirit inside of you? More specifically, are you living with discernment and wisdom to test messages before you believe them. There are false messages about God everywhere in our culture. Everywhere you turn, there's something being taught to you about God. False messages about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. False messages about the Christian life. False messages about the Bible, about church. Do you just take it all in as gospel or do you test it first? After testing it, you might just find the message isn't true. It doesn't line up with the true profession of Christ that we see here in 1 John. And yes, false messages about God, the Christian life, the Bible, the church, they all eventually make their way back to Jesus. Who's Jesus? Which is what John has sought to make clear for us. Verse 4 says, we are from God. Those who possess the Spirit of God are the sons of God. That's Galatians 4, 6. You do not possess the Holy Spirit if you're not a child of God. This is significant. Because you cannot possess the Spirit of the Son if you do not first confess the Son. That means for those of you here who who aren't Christians... We're glad that you're here. We're glad that on a Sunday morning you've chosen to come join us, to sing songs that you might not know, to listen to prayers and listen to me talk for a long time and make corny jokes. But if you aren't a Christian, what's clear from the text is you don't have the Holy Spirit. And this should be concerning to you. Because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't discern between what's true And what's false? Paul writes this in Ephesians 4. You are being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine. Notice the picture. There is no solid foundation to stand on for someone without the Spirit. And that's hard for us to see. Because every Christian in this room knows what that feels like, friend. We know what it's like to be tossed to and fro by the wind because we've been there. You are subject to whatever the next spirit is that comes your way because you don't know the truth, but you can because salvation is a gift. It's a free gift given to us in Christ Jesus. If we repent of our sins and turn to him in faith to forgive us of our sins and he makes us right with God. This is the true confession that the Son of God came in the flesh to pay for our sins on the cross, to be the Savior 
of the world. And because we believe this message, God abides in us and by his spirit. If we ever come across a message that's not from him, we don't fall for it. We can have assurance this world and its messages will not overcome us. We've overcome them. And you can, by God's grace, overcome them too. If you want to know more about this beautiful confession, you can come find somebody after the service. You can find me, find Christian, find EJ, anybody you've seen up here, talk to us. We'd love to talk to you and help you take a step in that direction. Those who make this confession possess the Holy Spirit. God lives in us, and therefore we know the true God. We know our God because his spirit lives in us. He abides in us. We possess him. We have him. So if we know our God, what does that have to do with love? That's point number two. Christians can be assured we know love because our God is love. Christians can be assured we know love because our God is love. I believe a lot of the controversy surrounding these verses could be resolved simply, I say simply, simply by understanding them in their context. If we import our own definitions into the text, we can make a biblical text say whatever we want it to say. If you're doing your devotions in the morning or at night, friend, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Just take the verse out of context and apply it however you think best to your own life. But to be clear, that's not a faithful way to read the Bible. That's not the way we ought to read the Bible. It cannot be our method if we're seeking to understand what the Bible really says and what it really means for us in our lives. Understanding the meaning of a verse and its context is of utmost importance before you seek to determine the meaning of a biblical text and then apply it to your life. We cannot, as the spirits in the world would want us to, we cannot import a 21st century definition of love into our text to say God is all-inclusive of any form of love relationship anytime between anyone. That would be unfaithful to the text. That's not what the text says. And interestingly enough, God being love is actually just a supporting argument for John. It's not the main thing. What does John want us to get out of all of this? Verse 7, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves one another has been born of God and knows God. It's assurance of salvation. That's what he wants for us. He's actually just continuing his logic from chapter 3. You say you're a child of God, you ought to love the brothers like God loves them. Chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That sounds a lot like verse 7, which then sounds a lot like verses 11 and 12, which say, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's a whole lot of love. And the purpose, yet again, is to bring assurance of salvation to the Christian. Here's another commentary. Put it this way. The point here is that the absence of love for one another is evidence that a person does not know God because God is love. And there can be no real knowledge of God 
which is not expressed in love for fellow believers. This love has nothing to do with, with God's acceptance of any and every form of what we think love is. And it has everything to do with the love one Christian ought to share with another Christian because God has first shown us his love in sending his son to die for our sins. Do you want to know what love is? Look at verse 9. God showed his love by sending his son into the world, catch this, that we might live through Christ, that we might live, not die, hear the love of God, friend. God does not want you to die in your sin. It is not his desire for us to receive his wrath. His love can be seen and that he showed mercy to a sinful and rebellious world by coming into the world and providing a propitiation for our sin. But what's craziest of all, what's craziest, verse 10, God did it out of his love for us, not because of our love for him. Because he chose to love a sinful and rebellious people because he desired, as Paul says in Romans 9, to have mercy on whom he has mercy and have compassion on whom he has compassion. He sent us Jesus. Hear me, church. Love is bound up in Jesus, the Son of God. What love is, what it looks like, how we express it, it's all bound up in Jesus. Follow, follow John's logic. God is love. He showed us that love in Jesus. So in order to understand the statement, God is love, we have to look through the lens of Christ. No one has ever seen God, he says. That's God in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, in all of his majesty. That's God perfect in all might and in all wisdom. But no one's seen God this way. Some have seen glimpses of God as he's passed by. But no one's seen God in his fullness except the Lord Jesus. Jesus says of himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Church, as we look at Christ, we behold something beautiful. We see the heart of our God. God is love. His nature is love. Before the world was created, before God created man in his image, as our brother Chad has so helpfully prayed and set his affections upon them, God was there, existing in perfect unity, perfect community amongst the Trinity. This is important for us in a love incorruptible amongst the three persons of the Godhead, perfect for all eternity, love so amazing, so divine, and it's out of that love, the love that God has for himself in perfect unity, the Father sent His only Son to be the Savior of the world. And if we trust in the Son, He gives us the Spirit inside of us. What a love, church, that a triune, eternal God would share love with us, a sinful and rebellious people. Verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. Can you grasp the assurance that the Spirit is offering you this morning in these verses of Scripture? Does this love fill you with joy? Does it fill you with peace? Do you feel empowered 
to sacrificially love your brother and sister in Christ? But let's get practical then. Maybe you're sitting wondering, I can see God's love for me. I can see his love for me shown in Christ Jesus on the cross. And I want to love my brothers and sisters that way. But how, Caleb, how? Your heart's desire is in the right place. And I think this is a good place to start. Here are a few ways. Last week, we learned if you see a brother or sister a material need, loving them means you feel that need. You sacrificially love them with your financial or material resources to fill the need. If you don't have the means then, but you want to love them, you love them by sacrificing time and asking God in prayer to provide whatever that need is. Here's another way, another implication, I think, from our text this morning. You love this way by helping guard your brother and sister from believing error. It is loving If you notice something in their life that doesn't seem in line with the scriptures, you hear words they speak and they don't sound like the truth, it's loving to go to them. Figure out the core of the issue with grace and with love. Seek to understand them and where they're coming from, where it is that they're getting this message from. And if it turns out they're believing something false, go to the scriptures with them. Pray with them together and discern the error. Correct the error together and walk in the truth. One more way you can love your brothers and sisters is by reminding them how much God loves them in Christ. Do you need to be reminded of that this morning, brother, sister? God loves you. He loves you in Christ. Be encouraged by that. Remind them of the confession we see in our text. Remind them of the gospel. In this way, still, you're reminding them of the assurance they have in Christ, by the power of the Spirit. And yet again, you're safeguarding their heart from believing the lies of the world, the lies of the devil. Do you love this way? You can. You can. This kind of love shouldn't stop with brothers and sisters in the church. So hear this. I think we should love all Christians this way. The Christians we meet in the neighborhood the Christians we know at work, the Christians from another church, the Christians in our families. This is the kind of love that distinguishes us from the world, loving in deed and loving in truth, God's love working in us and through us. Because think about this. Our society at large promotes definitions of love on social media, commercials, television shows, podcasts, businesses that are fundamentally different definitions of love than what God has shown us, not only here but throughout the testimony of Scripture. But the more we listen, the more we watch, the more we are around it, the more those definitions are widely accepted and our definition begins to fade, the more tempting it will be to just believe it. Some of you may know people in this room who claim to follow Christ, yet glorify society's definitions of love. They claim Jesus while simultaneously reveling in their own personal, sexually immoral desires or that of others. Or maybe you claim to know Christ, but the love you know is not the love God has shown us. That can be us. That could be you. It could be me. And you might push back and you might say, no, no way, never. I stand with Jesus. I know what love is. But this letter exists. 
This letter exists because Christians were being led astray by subtle, pervasive, false messages about Jesus. And they need to be reminded, you and I need to be reminded, of the truth regularly. So that, Lord willing, we abide in the truth and the truth abides in us. That's why every week we come and we sit under the preaching of God's word. That's why we do personal Bible study. That's why we do Bible studies with one another. That's why we meet with one another to get coffee and talk about life, talk about things that have been going on. That's why we listen to biblically sound podcasts or read biblically sound books and articles. Because we need to be reminded of the truth regularly. We forget what truth is so easily. And one of the first things a Christian is prone to forget is God's love for them. Remember his love. Third, final point, Christians do not fear judgment because our God loves us. Let this sit. Christians do not fear judgment because our God loves us. That's verse 17 through 21. I don't mean judgment in the sense of people, are, people in the world are judging you for what you believe about love. Even though that still would be an appropriate application, we, we shouldn't fear people judging you for believing the truth. You shouldn't. But the judgment here that's mentioned in verse 17, which if you remember, John touched on in chapter 2, he says, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him and shame at his coming. This is Christ's second coming when he will bring final judgment to the world. No more opportunities to repent. No more chances to obey. The Lord's forbearance and patience with the world will reach its fullness, and judgment will come. The implication from the text is that this day should be feared. We should fear the coming judgment. The world should fear the coming judgment of God. If you don't know Christ, you ought to fear the coming judgment of God. It is coming. It will come. But the Christian does not need to fear this day because we know God loves us. Look at verse 16 again. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Christian, God loves you. Do you believe that? And not only has he shown you that love in Christ, but he has put that love inside of you. And he's perfecting that love, meaning it is growing from one degree to another until we see him again. But don't miss this. Look at the means by which he's perfecting that love. The end of verse 16. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It's easy to get lost in the abides. But remember what we've learned up to this point. If you want to abide in God, what does that mean? It means obeying his commandments and loving the brothers. This is the means by which his love is perfecting, perfected in us. Hear this. He is perfecting the love in us by the power of his spirit while you are perfecting the love by obeying him and loving the brothers. We are both active participants in this confidence. You can have confidence, but confidence is not a passive affair because God's love for you is real and real love produces real action. We act. God loves you. Are you living like it? Living like it 
involves obeying your loving Father. Living like it involves loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Living like it gives us confidence and casts out the fear of punishment because what is it that we should be afraid of? Why should we fear punishment? What are we going to be punished for? We're living righteously. We're loving the brothers as we ought. We're doing what pleases God. There's no reason to fear punishment if this is what you're doing, if love is being perfected in you. But if you're not living a life of obedience, you're living in disobedience, fear. If you're living a life in the darkness, hating the brothers, what more is there to do but fear? That's John's point. If you fear punishment from God, think about it. God's going to come back. Ask yourself, am I afraid? Why? If you fear punishment, what does that say about your relationship with God? Check that. You don't have to stay there. Check it. Perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because as John showed us before, if God has truly changed us on the inside, we're going to show it on the outside. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Why? Well, the question should actually be, why do you fear punishment, punishment in the first place? Your fear reveals something fundamental about you. Either you don't really know God like you say you do, and that's where you should start, or you say you know God, but you aren't living like it. Then you should go there. Check it. Neither brings confidence, which is why John writes verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And like a bookend, John connects it back to chapter 2. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. If you find yourself in disagreement with other brothers and sisters, what should you do? Love, because God loved you first. If you find yourself frustrated with another's comments, angered by their actions, what do you do? Love, because God loved you first. It's not easy for us to love one another. We are all very different. God made us that way. We're all different. Our attitudes, our personalities, likes and dislikes, if I'm honest, I'm genuinely concerned about those of you who drink unsweet tea. That's not okay. That's not okay if I'm honest. Something's wrong. I don't understand. But despite all of our differences, despite what we agree on or disagree on, this one thing is for sure. If we're in Christ, God loves us. And because that's true, he gives me the power to love you and he gives you the power to love me in whatever way that might look. Maybe it means providing for a need, giving an encouraging word, praying regularly, singing next to me on a Sunday as hard as you can, even though you don't really like the song, you know I like the song, and you're singing as hard as you can because you know that encourages me. Sitting next to me on a Sunday when I'm sitting alone, shaking hands, hugging necks, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, doing what a church does, loving your brothers and sisters because God loved you first. He loved you when you were dead, in the world, lost. You didn't love him. You were walking in the darkness. 
Do you know anyone who's lost like that? Anyone in your life? Right now? I think it would still be unfaithful to the text to assume, hear me, that God's love starts and stops with other Christians. John has been giving criterion to determine if someone's profession of faith is genuine by their love for Christians. Yes, he's speaking to the love between us, but not to exclude the love we ought to show the lost. Hear the words of Christ. Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Sounds like a criteria. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And here it is. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Do you have an increasing love for the lost around you? The lost in your community, the lost at work, the lost that you're in regular contact with. Do you have an increasing love for them? The love of God in us compels us to love the lost because that's when God showed his love to us. When we were lost, like sheep without a shepherd, what are some of the ways you can sacrificially love the lost person right next to you? It might look like fulfilling monetary needs for that one neighbor who's a single parent, has got three kids, she can hardly make it. Or providing a meal to the homeless man you see regularly. We see the same guy regularly, and if we close our heart to him, what does John say? How does God's love abide in us? Maybe it looks like approaching that one coworker who just had a rough go at it and praying for them right there. Deed and in truth. Hear me, it's not enough to say, sorry man, I hope it gets better. Share the hope of Christ with them. Pray for them then and pray for them in your prayer closet at home and then tell them that you're praying for them regularly. Check in. How are you? How have you recovered? How are you doing right now? I'm praying for you, friend. You don't know my God. I know my God and my God lives in me. I'm praying for you. How can you love the lost sacrificially? Look at the people around you in your daily life. I'm not saying do something abnormal and go to a random place and do things. I'm, I'm saying, look at around you in your daily life. How can you love those people who walk with you day by day because God's love is inside you? As Jesus is, so also are we in this world, our text says. Love always gets back around to Jesus. Jesus was loved by the Father, and Jesus loved the lost. He had compassion on the poor and the needy. Jesus loved his brothers, and he loved them to the end. The end of his life, the life he laid down for them, for us. You and I are like Jesus in the same way in this world. God loves us, and we love the brothers, and we love the lost. Whoever loves God must also love his brother, and we can because God is love, and he is in us. Whoever loves God must also love his neighbor, and we can because God is love and he is in us. Don't let the world outshine us in loving the lost, providing for their needs. We have the light of Christ in us. God is in us, and we can love them sacrificially. So back to where we started. 
What is love? I'm not going to sing it. Our gracious God, who is love, has shown us that love is self-sacrificial, that it originates in God alone, and the love that we show is a result of God's love first working in us. When you love, you're just loving with his love. So love more. Love more. And take heart, brother or sister. We love because he first loved us. Let's pray.